Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Um, this is also the second week in a row that we're talking about a Fletcher collab and, like, not talking about Fletcher. Well, all you need to know is that he had fly-as-hell ginger wavy hair yeah. and cute little rosy cheeks. He was a total babe. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of all you need to know about the guy for right now. Learn more about Fletcher the next time we talk about a Fletcher play, which will be sometime in season three, I think. Maybe. <laughs> Just maybe. Sometime. Well, he'll, yeah. he, he'll show up. He's, he's a prolific guy yeah, and he got around. He got so. around. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Hamlet. And this week we're talking about the two noble kinsmen with our dear friend, Linnea Barkland. Yay! What up, Linnea? Hi, Linnea. Excited to be here. We're so, so, so excited to have you here. Linnea is here with us as part of the January of Shitty Plays, uh, because Aubrey and I don't know this play very well. I have read it uh, at least once. Aubrey, have you read it ever? Uh, No, but I saw it one time. Cool. All right. But so so we don't know it pretty well, but Linnea loves it and is currently working on a production of it. So she's here to help us out. Yeah. Yeah. Also, if you think you're an expert on one of Shakespeare's plays or a contemporary play, uh, sorry, one of Shakespeare's contemporaries plays um, and would like to talk with us about it on a future episode, email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com and pitch us your ideas. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. So, our good friend Linnea, hi Linnea. Hello, Jess. Um, Linnea is currently an MFA student at the Mary Baldwin University Shakespeare and Performance Program. She's a dramaturg, an actor, sometimes a writer. She's definitely obsessed. She also likes Russian literature. Um, and she's a nerd and awesome. So, like, thanks for hanging out, Linnea. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Did I do that bio justice for you? You did. You gave it the Hamlet spin I was looking for. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All righty. So every week here on this podcast, even when I am dying from the plague, uh, we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, who is William Susan Shakespeare, mm. at what we like to call the 101 level. Yeah, that's introductory stuff. Everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff like you will get nowhere else, like our opinions. And this week, Linnea's many opinions and her research and all of the things about this play I know very little about and can barely remember from that one time I saw it back in the 90s. (laughs) So, I mean, I was a teenager and I was like, I don't know about this. So because we're word nerds, each week we start our episodes with the device of the week, where we draw a random device from our handy dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device flashcards. Yeah. 
For actors and scholars, knowing the rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. And it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. So, Linnea, as the guest of honor, you get to tell me when to stop. Although at this point, God, I might as well, like, I don't know if I should, like, fan them out for you. Oh, yeah. Like, there's pick a so number. few of them. There's no, there's no good way to do this. Okay, I'm just going to, you just tell me when to stop, I guess, and we'll see how this goes. All right. Stop. Oh. <laughs> that's, well, that's the end one. Okay, well, <laughs> that's fine. That was an inartful snap on my part. Sorry. Okay, so this week, oh, it's kind of a boring one. It's Climax. Oh, let's do something else. Let's do a different one. Okay. Yeah, take that fucking shit out of there. It's not a real thing. Climax. Because, I mean, we all know what Climax is. It's a, uh, for these deck of cards, it's direction. Gee, which direction does Climax lead? Upwards, one would hope. Um, that's kind of all you need to know about the rhetorical device, Climax. Okay, well, here, let's do this. We have at least one of each style left. So you just, you give me a color, blue, purple, green, red, or orange. Green. Okay, green. Well, there's only one green left. So, there you go. Oh, this is a good one. Okay. The rhetorical device of the week is polysyndeton. Woo! Yay! I like polysyndeton. Sounds like you do too. So, polysyndeton, P-O-L-Y-S-Y-N-D-E-T-O-N, polysyndeton, is employing many conjunctions between clauses, often slowing the tempo or the rhythm. So, it's a form of addition. And uh, what was our fun little mnemonic device about this one? Polysyndeton is a dinosaur that poops conjunctions. There it is. Yeah, and asyndeton was the dinosaur that eats conjunctions. So is that just the same dinosaur, but early? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I suppose it could be. <laughs> he is asyndeton before he eats when he eats the conjunctions, and he is polysyndeton when he poops them. <laughs> Speaking of dinosaurs, uh. The example is from Hamlet. That was a terrible segue. Because uh, <laughs> Hamlet's clearly a dinosaur. Um, nor customary suits of solemn black, nor windy suspiration of forced breath. No, nor the fruitful river in the eye, nor the dejected havior of the visage. Blah, blah, blah. Nor, 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 nor. That's a bad That's example. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard. You know, basically you're looking for the repetitions of and, 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 or but, 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 huh, or in this case, nor, 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 nor. And this is also, um, what's that one? The beginning of repetition of uh, beginnings. Anaphora? Anaphora, there we go. This is also anaphoric. So, yeah, so there you have it. Polysyndeton is the dinosaur that poops conjunctions. Just conjunction mess everywhere. It's now time for a burbage break with Master and a Half Barkland. <laughs> okay, so today I am interested in talking about interchangeability or substitution in The Two Noble Kinsmen. So I've titled this, I know that you don't normally do titles of burbage breaks, but I titled this Lord, the Difference of Men, which is a, a line that the jailer's daughter says. So basically, this play revels in substitution or interchangeability, and I've just listed out a whole bunch of examples of that. So the first one is 
Theseus goes off to war, sending Pirithous to his wedding with Hippolyta so that the ceremony can continue. Pirithous stands in for Theseus, and this proxy wedding is later echoed with the jailer's daughter and the wooer dressed as Palamon. Emilia is Hippolyta's sister, and we'll talk about this in the Dramatis Personae, but Amelia's love for her friend Flavina is redirected to her relationship with her unnamed woman. Depending on performance choices, their relationship could be merely friendship, or it could very easily have a sexual aspect to it, too. Amelia, as we all know, is a canonical lesbian, so it makes sense that she would interview people for the role of Flavina. Moving on. Later... Amelia cannot decide which kinsman, Palamon or Arcite, she will choose to marry and let the other one die. Uh, in 4-2, we see her with portraits of Arcite and Palamon, trying to decide which one is better, or at least which one is more worth keeping alive. And she it, it says this really wonderful thing. She says, my virgin's faith has fled me, for if my brother but even now had asked me whether I loved, I had run mad for Arcite. Now, if my sister, more for Pirithous, stand both together. Now come ask me, brother. Alas, I know not. Ask me now, sweet sister, I may go look. What a mere child is fancy, that having two fair gar guards of equal sweetness cannot distinguish, but must cry for both. She describes them differently. She has a whole big long monologue about how uh, describing them physically and how Arcite has such a lovely face and Palamon has such a great brow, blah, blah, blah. Um, but ultimately, the two kinsmen are interchangeable for her. And her main conflict is that she has been put into this position of needing to choose in the first place. So they are different, but not to her. The daughter, the jailer's daughter, on the other hand, knows the difference between them immediately. Unlike Amelia, she has clear a clear preference for Palamon. Her father, in the first scene that we see them, 2-1, her father points them out saying that, oh, there's Arcite, but she corrects him saying, no, 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 that's Palamon. She falls in love with Palamon, helps him escape from prison, and a few scenes later, she talks about how she fell in love with him, say, uh, saying, then I loved him, extremely loved him, infinitely loved him, and yet he had a cousin fair as he too. But in my heart was Palamon, and there, Lord, what a coil he keeps. The daughter sees the difference between Palamon and Arcite, even if no one else can. And the daughter also sees a big difference between Palamon and the wooer, who later imitates Palamon in an effort to restore the daughter to her right mind. And then again, this is all dependent on performance, but depending on the choice that one wants to make, the daughter's question to the wooer, are you not Palamon, could be a real question, because she really does not know if he is Palamon or not. Or it could be the daughter giving the wooer a chance to reveal himself as himself because she really has enough lucidity to know that he is actually the wooer dressed as Palamon and sort of giving him a chance to, to out himself or at least letting him know that she's kind of onto him. And I have a note about that later, but I'll, I'll talk about that later. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And then... Uh, in the Morris dance, which we'll talk about <laughs> shortly, I love the Morris dance, but the jailer's daughter ends up substituting for Sicily, the Semster's daughter, who promised by bread and wine that she would be there, but she didn't show up. And so they had to find another woman and they find the jailer's daughter and she's stark raving mad, supposedly. And they're like, this is great. So they <laughs> bring a mad woman into their dance and it's wonderful. So this interchangeability is reflected particularly in the occupation or function names that we see in the play. 
at least in the lower classes, like jailer, wooer, schoolmaster, friend, brother, daughter, countryman, their individuality is superseded by what their function is in society and in the play, functions that could supposedly be performed by literally anyone. And then another aspect of this interchangeability is one that I was thinking about earlier today, is the fact that this play is set in Athens, yet the characters refer to the gods by their Roman names rather than their Greek names, sort of interchanging those. And I know that, you know, they're pretty equivalent, but there are differences between the Roman gods and the Greek gods, and yet these Greek characters are using these Roman names. And I believe that the only instance that a Greek name is used is when the schoolmaster says, Pallas, inspire me, as in Pallas Athena. I could be wrong, but that's the one instance that sticks in my brain. Uh, So they're using these Roman names for supposedly Greek setting. And then at the end of the play, Arcite and Palamon fight for Emilia's hand. And Arcite is the victor, but he ends up Spoilers, he ends up dying. So Arcite, the original victor, is exchanged for Palamon, who ultimately wins Amelia. But another thing that I found really interesting about this is that throughout the play, the kinsmen, Arcite and Palamon, refer to each other by name a lot, like multiple times during a speech. A lot, a lot. And so that naming tends to defy their interchangeability, at least with each other, at least when they're only with each other. Even when the play itself often works to enforce their sameness, sort of treating them as a unit. But the two of them sort of, in a way, try to defy that, which I think is really interesting. So you've you've blazed through a lot of the play, yeah, which I love. A lot of that didn't make it into our summary. Like, what's his ass? Per- Perthus? Perthus? Per- him. Yeah, I cut him right out. <laughs> We're going to have lots of fun with these names. I was like, I don't know how to say this name, and I feel like he's just a functionary, so bye. <laughs> yeah, but he's so not. Like, he's such an important character, but he doesn't, his his stage time does not reflect how important he is as a character. Like, he and Theseus are, okay. Um, <laughs> yes, lay it on us, girl. just going to talk about Pirithus for a second, because in the Greek mythology, and the Theseus myth, He and Pirithus met because Pirithus had heard all of these rumors and stories about how great Theseus was. And so Pirithus wanted to meet him. And so in order to meet him, he rustles his cattle, sort of (laughs) Theseus to chase him. And so the two of them start to fight or are about to fight or whatever, but they're so impressed with each other that instead of going through with a fight, they become best friends. (laughs) That's really cute. Yeah, exactly. And then that is echoed in Theseus and Hippolytus' story, too, where they fight. And according to some myths, Theseus outright subdues her. In some stories, she yields voluntarily. But either way, they fight and are so, again, so impressed with each other that they're like, okay, let's get married. So (laughs) (laughs) Let's procreate instead and create a superhuman because we're so impressed with each other. Exactly. And they <laughs> the politics, but that's that's doesn't happen in this play. Mm. Um, I'm curious, Linnea, uh, about the you mentioned the interchangeability of the Greek and Roman gods names. And I'm wondering if you have any idea if that's just authorial sloppiness, like inattention or or if there is something else going on there. Yeah, that's I'm trying to suss that out earlier, because I would think that authorial sloppiness would result in Roman and Greek names being used throughout the play 
literally interchangeably. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shakespeare would have known the difference, right? right? Yeah. He had the classical education. And I would assume Fletcher so, would too. Yeah. yeah. Them absolutely did. So I can't imagine that this was an accident, but I don't know a good reason. Maybe because they maybe because because Latin is used in the play. Sure. And so they use those Roman words instead. Um, it's just so interesting. Yeah. Cause like, why would they make that mistake? Yeah. 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 Given its consistency, it doesn't seem like a mistake, but a, but a, an intention, but I'm not entirely sure. Like I can't really speak to why exactly that would be. That was your burbage break with master and a half Barkland. Yay. All right, so we're transitioning into summary time now. So we always try to begin those with a five-word unhelpful title. Mine this week is <laughs> Midsummer's Terrible, Terrible Sequel, maybe? Question mark? <laughs> uh-huh. I, that too. We'll talk about that later. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's got a few overlapping characters, and I just found myself wondering, like, does oh, this, what, how does this fit with the Midsummer part, you know, that we all my- know? Slice these plays together and just see what happens because uh, Midsummer starts earlier than Kinsman, but Kinsman and anyway, yeah. like it's yeah, but so. they all they all happen at the same time. It's really mm, weird. All right, mine is there's a Morris dance, man. <laughs> I'm here for this Morris dance. This is my favorite thing about the play. The <laughs> Morris dance thing. Okay, and mine is Athenian girls love the woods. Yes, they do. They do. They just wander into them all the goddamn time, those Athenian girls. Facing men that they love, yeah. those Athenian ladies. Moving on. Moving on. To the DP. Yes. The dramatis personae, but only the really important ones, which apparently we even skipped some by Linnea's standards. I have different standards for this play. Though. Of course you do. I mean, being the dramaturg, I would anticipate that you would. Yeah, I'm like, everyone's important. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so to kick things off, we have Theseus, the Duke of Athens. Yes, that Theseus, just like in Midsummer. Same guy. There's also Hippolyta, his bride. You will remember her from Midsummer. Amelia, her sister, not in Midsummer. Uh Creon, the Duke of Thebes. And if you know, you know, the Oedipus plays and Antigone and stuff, you might recognize that guy. He doesn't show up in this play, though. Well, no, not Oedipus, but Creon. He, he's not on stage. Anyway. But, yeah, he's a... Yeah. I didn't know what to do with him, because, like, he's in the summary. But he's not... <laughs> in the I don't know. Oh. Whatever. So, anyway. Anyway. Palamon, <laughs> who is a noble kinsman of Creon. Mm. And then we have Arcite, Palamon's cousin, also a noble kinsman of Creon. Oh, so wait, there are two noble kinsmen? Right. So weird how that works okay, out. Okay, great. Um, then there's the jailer who is uh, whose occupation is guess what? A jailer. He has a daughter who's called the jailer's daughter. And then there is a wooer who is wooing the jailer's daughter. And finally, to round out this summary and and our dramatis personae, we have a doctor. Um, he's a doctor. And he's a dude, apparently, with some vague notions of physiology, but literally no understanding of what consent is. So that's (laughs) fun and helpful. He made me angry. Yeah, I can tell. (laughs) All right, so why is this play so goddamn popular? Well, it's not, but Linnea's about to tell us why it should be. 
Yes, please do. I am. <laughs> uh, before I get into that, I'm going to say why it probably isn't, because this can be kind of a difficult play to get into, mostly because it is just long and talky. There are tons of big, long speeches, and the language is super metaphor-heavy and with metaphors that modern audiences may not get right away. And all of these speeches are very descriptive of things happening on st off stage, so it can be pretty static stuff if not handled carefully. Um, and there are only the two, really only the two plots, but a lot is happening in both of them, so it can feel really busy but still descriptive and static. So a good cut helps a lot. Uh, higher dramaturgs. Anyway, so now on to this. <laughs> why do this? Play, why this play is so great? Um, there are a whole tons of things, but I have to remind myself that this is a 101 episode, so I'll just have to come back later and keep talking. Um, but a few things that make this play so great is that although the language can be dense, there are some gorgeous speeches. And I'm thinking specifically of two speeches. The first is when the wooer describes the daughter's suicide attempt. And the second is when Pirithus describes Arcite's demise while writing the horse Amelia gave him. And admittedly, these speeches are, as I said before, very descriptive. They relate events that happen off stage, but the imagery is really wonderful. For example, the wooer says about the jailer's daughter, the place was knee deep where she sat, her careless tresses, a wreath of bulrush rounded. About her stuck thousand freshwater flowers of several colors that methought she appeared like the fair nymph that feeds the lake with waters or as Iris newly dropped down from heaven. And that sounds a lot like Gertrude's speech about Ophelia, except yeah. in this case, the wooer actually does something and interrupts the daughter's suicide attempt while Gertrude does nothing. She just observes Ophelia. And then Pirithus, in describing how the horse and rider went, he says, as he thus went counting the flinty pavement, dancing at, as twere to the music his own hooves made, for as they say from iron came music's origin, blah, 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 blah. Like he just has a really beautiful way of speaking about how the horse walked and how our sight rode him. <laughs> um, but I just find that whole speech really beautiful and heartbreaking, especially because our sight is mortally wounded at the end of it. So there we go. Again, spoilers. Another thing that makes this play so great is that there are instant shifts in tone. Especially with Artsite and, pa and Palamon, we see them, for example, when they're in the prison, they're declaring how much they love each other and never want to be parted and how not, and how being in prison is not bad because they're together and they'll be together forever. And then the next second, they see Amelia through their prison window and they are ready to kill each other because they both are like, man, she's hot. And even though like they are in prison and they are fighting about this woman that by rights, neither of them will ever meet, let alone marry or have sex with or whatever, like they're, they're fighting over nothing. Uh, so those shifts are ridiculous and hilarious, but they are also odd and kind of unsettling and contribute to the tinge of danger that pervades through the entire play, which I think is really wonderful and sort of off-putting in a, in a really remarkable and uh, compelling way. And then we have, along with the royals, we have the country people and their Morris dance, and they're just so silly and feckless and enthusiastic. 
And they perform this Morris dance for Theseus and Hippolyta, and this dance even includes a Bavian or a baboon, or at least a country person dressed as a baboon. And they thought back in early modern times, they thought that baboons were half men, half man, half dog creatures. So like baboons would bark and it was this whole thing. And so like with Pyramus and Thisbe in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Theseus and Hippolyta are subjected to this painfully amateur performance, but are expected to love it and are expected to like, you know, reward the people doing it for them. And I just love the country people for a lot of reasons, but unlike every other character in this play, the country people run into the jailer's daughter and they recognize her madness and don't see it as something that needs to be cured or hidden away. They, they're like, this is even better. Um, so that could be exploiting her madness or it could just be like, this is exactly what we need. I don't know. And like have a more innocent approach to it. But either way, they're not like, oh, she's mad. We should probably like tie her up and, you know, put something on her head to cool her down or something. I don't know. Like, <laughs> approaching it humorally or whatever. And I, in some ways, it's really hard to articulate why I love this play so much, because it is kind of a total mess. But it is also really coherent in some ways, in that we see echoes from the A plot in the B plot and vice versa. And it's just clever and sad and deeply unsatisfying. And I tend to be drawn to plays like that, like Kinsman or Trailis and Cressida or Measure for Measure, plays that encourage, as you've talked before on the show, about staging the problem and they don't give easy answers. And it's it gives a lot more possibility for performance in my mind and it gives a little bit more to chew on. So I just I just love this play. <laughs> Your brain is so hot. <laughs> and people can't see Linnea right now, but she's literally beaming as she's talking about this play. So it's really it's, cute. It's awesome. So, thank God. Thank God you're here. Somebody has to beam about this play. But but you're turning me around on it. You're making me really want to want to like it. So I'm... I really like this play. I just don't know very well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a wacky play and it's just really there's a lot in it, but it's busy and it takes some teasing out some of the, the themes. And a, again, a good cut is what this play is really asking for, basically. It's funny how many of Shakespeare's plays we've run into lately, especially with our guests as we get into like deep in the canon um, of like, this play maybe needs to be cut and then people would like it better. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing that as a trend a lot. Yeah, like with this one, I mean, pretty much the whole first act reads kind of as a closet drama and it's just like long speech after long speech after long speech. And it's like, why? Okay, we get it. It's really, but then it really picks up, which makes me feel good for. Fletcher, because supposedly Fletcher is the one who wrote all of the middle. So, oh. yeah. Okay. It's summary time. Ooh. You ready, Jess? I'm ready. I just wanted to grab my Arden oh, real sure. quick because I was wondering if um, it had a breakdown of who wrote what, but I'm not seeing one on my first very quick flip through. So we will now summarize the two noble kinsmen for you in a segment that this week we're calling the one noble summary. Uh, Thanks guys. (laughs) Thanks. Yep. Yep. Go forth Linnea whenever ready. All right. Kick us off. 
one, act one, Theseus's wedding is interrupted by three, th three queens, by three <laughs> queens in mourning who beg Theseus to go to war against their oppressor, Creon, king of Thebes. Once Theseus's bride, Hippolyta, and her sister, Amelia, join in with the queens, Theseus agrees to help them. He departs, leaving Hippolyta to marry him by proxy to his friend, Pirithus. Cousins Arcite and Palamon decide to leave Thebes because they can't stand their uncle Creon's ev evil ways, but then they find out Theseus is going to attack, so they stick around to help defend the, the city they love. Back in Athens, Amelia tells Hippolyta she'll never love a man because she can't imagine ever loving anyone more than her childhood girlfriend Flavina, hashtag gals being pals. Theseus takes Palamon and Arcite as prisoners. Act two, the jailer's daughter has been paying a lot of attention to Palamon and Arcite and ignoring the man her father wants her to marry, the wooer. I like how all these people have just names of their occupations and not actual names. Anyway, uh, Palamon and Arcite congratulate themselves on being resigned to their status as prisoners and resolving to make the best of the situation by relying on their friendship, which is so cute. But then Emilia wanders through the garden next to the prison and the boys immediately fall in love with her because obviously they would. And then they suddenly are mortal enemies after that. Theseus frees Arcite on the condition that he leaves Athens at once and forever and has Palamon locked away even further. Arcite is mad that Palamon will still be in the same place as Amelia and Palamon is mad that Arcite has the opportunity to meet her in person because boys are dumb. All right, Arcite disguises himself as a poor man to enter some competitions of physical prowess and stick around. And the jailer's daughter is totally in love with Palamon and plans to help him escape from prison. Arcite wins the competitions in his disguise and Theseus congratulates him. Arcite then gets put in a position of service for Emilia to his delight. And the jailer's daughter has totally helped Palamon escape and has hidden him in the woods, but he hasn't thanked her and he doesn't love her and she's super worried about it. Act three, Theseus's court goes out to celebrate the rites of May with a stag hunt. Arcite is thrilled with how things have worked out for him. Palamon erupts out of the bushes and calls Arcite a traitor. They agree to a duel. Arcite tells Palamon to hide again, promising to bring him food and weapons before they duel. The jailer's daughter has lost Palamon and worries about him and also worries that her father will be hanged for losing him. She loses control over her mind. Some country folk find her and think she would add a nice element to their Morris dance. They all perform for Theseus. Also, there's a baboon, hashtag random English baboon. Palamon and Arcite finally duel. Theseus comes across them and orders them to stop. Palamon exposes their identities to Theseus and asks that they be allowed to continue killing each other over Amelia. Amelia and Hippolyta beg Theseus to let Palamon and Arcite live and just banish them. Theseus decrees that Palamon and Arcite come back in a month with three friends each to fight to the death and Amelia will marry the victor. In Act 4, the jailer's daughter has a mad scene. Amelia is upset about the fight over her. A doctor suggests that the jailer's daughter might regain her senses if she marries Palamon, so they dress up the wooer as Palamon. Act 5, everyone goes to watch the fight while Amelia sits it out. Sits it out. Arcite wins. They're prepares to execute Palamon. A messenger enters with news that Arcite fell off his horse and is dying. He is brought in and tells Palamon to take Amelia, then dies. Theseus decrees a couple of days of mourning before the wedding takes place. Dang. The end. That was three minutes and 45 seconds. Good job, ladies. Good job, us. Wow. Wow. So this really does happen, like, concurrently with A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, it does. And so it's 
it's been performed, like produced in rep with Midsummer several times. Right. Yeah. Um, Brave Spirits did that a few years ago, right? Yeah. 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 And I saw their kinsman. I didn't see their midsummer, but their see, kinsman. See, I saw their midsummer and I didn't see their kinsman. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't see either of them. Love to just splice these plays together and see what happens and see like what characters end up meeting each other that wouldn't like yeah. from play to the other and like what would happen. It's super bizarre. Like super bizarre. Yeah. Totally weird. All right. Well. Okay. It's tips and tidbits time. So it's time for the Linnea show. Tell us some cool shit, man. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, as we've talked about, we've touched on this before, but Two Noble Kinsmen was a collaboration between Shakespeare and John Fletcher, probably written around 1613. The first printing of this play, however, wasn't until 1634. It was printed at, in quarto by Thomas Coates for John Watterson and it was registered in the stationer's register, and that was when it was classified as a tragic comedy. The widely accepted authorship breakdown is that Shakespeare wrote the first and last acts, and Fletcher wrote the middle bits, basically, including the B-plot with the jailer's daughter, which is not a plot found in Chaucer's The Knight's Tale, which was their main source material. The whole, like, Palamon, Arcite, Amelia thing is what The Knight's Tale is about. The jailer's daughter doesn't appear at all. But both of those playwrights, as we've mentioned, were quite popular in their day and later. And the latter half of the 17th century saw a number of adaptations after Kinsman. And then it had a pretty robust print life as well um, throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, but this 1634 text is cool for a couple of reasons. First of all, this quarto marks the first time that a Shakespeare text was printed with act and scene divisions, which is really cool. I think that Othello has act divisions, but no scenes. And then two, there is the occasional marginal stage direction. So we'll see like three hearses ready, like on the in the margins, like a page or so before they're supposed to enter, which is so cool. So I have, I've been poring over this. I have a facsimile of the quarto on the desk next to me. So I've been, I've been looking at those, but like, Ooh, those, fun. yeah. And those marginal stage directions are really cool and give us sort of a hint of how this would have been in performance in um, a way. I'm just um, going to break in here for a second. So for our listeners who don't exactly are, are not as familiar with print and textual culture as we might be, um, this is a really unusual thing. And, and a lot of us now take for granted act and scene breaks that usually editors have given to us much, much later. Like Shakespeare and other playwrights at the time didn't really think about that a lot. Am I right? Or, or was it just a Shakespeare thing? Or uh, They didn't really think about it unless they were in an indoor playhouse right which required you had yeah you had to take breaks for um for the candles and if you remember back to our change lean episode we started mm -hmm. we talked about how that play really used the idea right. of an interval to sort of structure the action of the play because right. of that inter act stage direction where what's his ass hides a naked rapier right right floors yeah um so this is a total sort of textual anomaly that the the authors have thought about this in advance and put them into the text before it was printed, right? Or that well, the printers did it? it? Yeah, I don't, I mean, Linnea, you know this text better than I do, but I don't think there's any definitive way to say who is responsible 
yeah. for those divisions. It okay. probably came from like the prompt book from the like the playhouse copy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, those act and scene divisions and the, the marginal stage directions. Those would yeah. both probably have come from the prompt book right. and somehow ended up in the in the published text. In the, in the printed so, text, which all by itself is so cool. Really cool. Okay, so I'll let you continue. Sorry, I just needed a break and, in there. Yeah, as I touched on earlier, for a not super popular play today, Two Noble Kinsmen had a pretty robust early print life. And so there were a number of printings throughout the 17th and 18th century. And this text copied from the 1634 quarto they used the same copy text it made its way into the second beaumont and fletcher folio and a couple of other editions and then editors started to include kinsmen in editions of shakespeare's work in the mid 19th century but it wasn't really until the early 20th century that this play was tacitly accepted into the shakespeare canon as opposed to sort of a a sort of a supplementary for you know for nerds um <laughs> And then I haven't done a lot of research about its actual production history, but I did a little poking around in the 20th and 21st century. And I just want to, because this is such a great quote, but the old Vic did a production in 1928. And one of the reviews of that described it as an experiment in prettiness because it really le leaned into like the fairy tale or merry old England aesthetic. And so that was sort of how this play was conceived for the next, you know, 50 years or so. And then it wasn't until the 1970s or thereabouts that production started leaning into the darker aspects of this play, you know, like thwarted love and uh, sexuality and death and that sort of thing. And so productions even today have a hard time balancing the comic aspects with the tragic as aspects of this play, usually heightening one to the detriment of the other. And part of that is just that it's a tough, play and it does not have a satisfying resolution and these characters make strange choices and it feels in many ways very very removed from our world today uh so yeah so our production that we're doing right now is set in the 1980s which is kind of fun because it's like the 1980s aesthetic translates pretty well to two noble kinsmen because it does have kind of that grungy gritty dangerous undertone to it as well as you know the conspicuous consumption aspects and that sort of thing of the 1980s and the, you know, feminism and that sort of thing. Those ideas, like women trying to take agency out of untenable situations. So that's just a little bit about the text and about the production. As I said earlier, this play is basically all about interruptions. It starts off with Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding ceremony, which is interrupted by three queens uh, coming to beg for Theseus's help. Arcet and Palamon's declarations of friendship are interrupted by Amelia in the garden, although, you know, like she doesn't realize that she's interrupting them. Arcet and Palamon's fight in prison is interrupted by the jailer. The country people and Arcite interrupt each other in the woods. Palamon interrupts Arcite's musings about Amelia. The jailer's daughter soliloquizing in the woods is interrupted by the country people or vice versa, and then they incorporate her into their performance. The country people's Morris dance rehearsal is interrupted by the stag hunt, which they then interrupt with their performance. Like the stag hunt and the rehearsal sort of interrupt each other because they happen to be in the same part of the woods at the same time. The jailer's conversation about his daughter with his friend is interrupted by his second friend. Again, like his friend, again, with the like, function names. It's the first friend and the second friend. 
um, and the jailer's brother. Like, it's so weird. Arsad and Palamon's next fight, they try to fight like four times in this play and they're interrupted every single time. Um, but Arsad and Palamon's next fight is, inter is interrupted by the stag hunt. The jailer's daughter's suicide attempt is interrupted by the wooer, as I talked about earlier. And Palamon's execution is interrupted by Arsad's death. So there's a lot that this play is, that is trying to happen in this play, but the rest of the play is sort of, is stopping those events, which is kind of, I don't know, it feels like, it feels very Greek to me with all of the descriptions of action happening off stage and violence not happening, happening on stage and all of that sort of thing. Our good friend Michael Wagner, who just graduated from Florida State, uh, has a, an article about interruptions in this play. Um, and I think he's maybe going to get at me if I get this wrong. Um, I think his dissertation was a lot about the the function of interruptions on stage in a bunch of plays, but I think mostly Shakespeare and Fletcher. Um, Familiarize so. More. He's a really cool dude. He's great. Shout out to Michael Wagner. We love him. Like, we'll have him on at some point, probably, because he's a super smart dude. Yeah. And he's a good, he's a good, good person to know. What else you got, Lenene? What else have I got? Okay, so another big thing that we haven't talked much about is the jailer's daughter and her madness. Yeah. And madness and melancholy are terms thrown around a lot in this play. And J the jailer's daughter is generally accepted to be in, in most scholars' terms, completely bananas. However, the terms mad and madness are used to describe men in general and the kinsmen specifically, much more often than they are about the jailer's daughter. I mean, she very well may be mad, but unlike Ophelia, for example, she maintains that element of lucidity throughout the play although she does occupy the position of the mad girl, quote unquote, singing songs and attempting suicide, et cetera. But the play is kind of, in a way, the play defies her madness by not letting her be in the right play for her state of mind in some ways. Like she's, I just want to kill myself, but like that's, or like she's taking the right steps that mad women are meant to take. But her madness is seen as green sickness more than anything else. Like all she needs is to, get a husband and have sex and she'll be fine. So that's part of the, I mean, that would cure my life. Right. So get out of yeah, my head, Hamlet. It. I was just going to say, don't like, knock it till you try it. That cures my madness every time. Better than a cup of tea, better than chicken soup. <laughs> exactly. And so the doctor, what we talked about before, how he, I mean, it's his idea to have the wooer dress up as Palamon and woo her as Palamon as, as a way of like, she's, you know, like she, her mind is, uh, is stuck on Palamon. And so it's like, okay, well, be Palamon dressed like him and humor her in every way, like sing with her, play with her, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so that's kind of, again, going with the consent thing. And there are a lot of ways to perform the jailer's daughter and this scene specifically, but, um, None of them are super satisfying because ultimately, basically throughout the play, she's sort of reaching for agency that she never can quite have. Because from the beginning of the play, her father and the wooer have been planning for her to marry the wooer. Basically, no matter what, but the jailer does in the first scene talk about, you know, that her consent is important. But it's a very Lord Capulet kind of thing where in the beginning, he's like consent, it, like her consent is what is important. 
But then, but then, you know, she stops acting like herself and is like, okay, well now we need to fix her no matter what. And this marriage will fix her. So we need to go, go through it, even if she's not in a frame of mind to give consent. So it feels very Lord Cap Juliet to me in that sense. So, yeah, I mean, this play in really both plots, the A plot and the B plot, resists any kind of true resolution because Amelia ends up marrying Talamon, but only because Arcite dies, but only because she gave him the horse to begin with and only blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so even with the promise of two weddings by the end of this play, it really leans into the tragic comedy angle that it just doesn't it's have such a easy easy resolution for any yeah. of it's such a weird and wonderful play and i super dig it yeah and uh i'm just gonna pull up this is one of theseus's last lines because it's just so like well we've done all we can do kind of thing theseus says never fortune did play a subtler game and then he goes on and you know like palamon you you won her rightly. Our site confessed that you did, in fact, see her first, which was kind of like an argument that he should have her instead of our site. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and then let us be thankful for that which is and with you leave dispute that are above our question. Let's go off and bear us like the time. So even though he's king and has a lot of power, he's like, well, the gods have done what they're going to do. So, <laughs> que sera, sera, you know. Yeah, and it's so, especially, with, you know, coming at it from a 21st century sensibility, it's so hard to just, like, let that be the ending. And and then there's an epilogue that has the gall to be like, so how did you like this play? <laughs> like, like Henry VIII, like last week's other uh, Shake Fletch collab. Yeah. has a, a prologue and an epilogue, which I, I think they're the only two plays in Shakespeare's canon that have both. And usually people are like, you know, the only one is Henry VIII, but it's also this one. So... I I cut both of those because they just kind of... They're not good. They don't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if they're not good and they don't make sense, then maybe you should cut them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah, such a stronger visual start to a play is this whole big wedding procession instead of this prologue talking yeah. about Chaucer and Shakespeare and Poe and Trent and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, don't care. Wow. <laughs> Should we play a game? Yeah. <laughs> it's line roulette time for Linnea. Oh, Linnea, are, if you're not familiar with the rules, I will I will restate them. So you can hear Jess rattling her dice right now. She's uh, What text are you working with today, Linnea? I have the second edition Arden. Awesome. Okay. Ooh. Interesting. Okay, Arden 2. the third edition. Great. The All revised right. edition. So Jess is going to roll an act, a scene, and a line number. And then you're going to have 60 seconds to uh, tell us why that particular line that she has rolled for you encapsulates the whole play. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) All right. Sounds like it'll be real easy with this play. You're looking for act three. Okay. Uh, Scene three. Do we have a scene three in act three? Sure do. Great. So act three, scene three, line 53. Line what? 53. 
Okay, my line 53 is Sierra. Cool. That's, that's what you get to work with. No, let me look. What is it? Three, act, I guess, three, three. Yeah, that, I guess I have, I'll hear no more as my 53. I guess Sierra is part of the end of, tail end of 52. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the same as mine is Sierra, Sierra. I'll hear no more. I'll hear no more. Take oh. it away, Linnea, whenever okay. you're ready. Hey, I'll hear no more. This goes back to Theseus uh, and the Queens and Hippolyta and Emilia trying to change his mind. And throughout the play, women are trying to change Theseus's mind. And eventually he does, uh, and he does capitulate to them the first couple of times. And then the last uh, part of the play, he um, eventually that last uh, monologue is his not so subtle hint for them to stop trying to change his mind because the gods have spoken. Um, and because this play is all about interruptions, in some way, subtly or not so subtly, the play is also saying, I will hear no more about whatever event is happening on stage to be replaced with another event happening on stage. Um, okay, uh, and, the, oh, you just made me nervous. Okay, and the, the, uh, the jailer will no longer hear that the jailer's daughter is not interested in the wooer because she's going to marry him no matter what. Bum. Cool. That <laughs> perfect. Woohoo. Success. Good job. That's the whole play. Thanks. <laughs> That's it. That's the play, everyone. Yeah. All right. Moving on to some corrections. And I believe we just yeah. have one little one this week. So we say a lot of things on this podcast, and sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong. So it seems only right to issue corrections as necessary. And this week, we are issuing a correction on behalf of one of our guests way back in the Troilus and Cressida episode at the end of last season, not the end of last season, at the end of our, before our break. Yeah, at the end of uh, 2018. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, like around <laughs> Thanksgiving, our Dear, wonderful, perfect friend Molly Saramet said that what they call Speedos in England are budgie smugglers. But apparently that is an Aussie saying, not a British saying. But in Molly's defense, she learned it while she was in England from an Australian. So there it is. We're just, we're covering her all over bases. She knows she got it wrong. You can stop texting her and tweeting at her she knows and we know and everybody knows but it's still like a hilarious thing so like all of australia got up her butt about it or what <laughs> they're no, like that's our slang that's our <laughs> slang mate you can't have it <laughs> okay sorry <laughs> that was terrible okay it is shakes bubble gossip time so first of course uh linnea what are you working on right now? Right at the moment, this production of Two Noble Kinsmen. And now that we've got a week of rehearsal under our belts, I'm feeling a little bit more together with that. Um, my other big project is my MFA thesis, which is related to our Ren show production of The Tragical History of Queen Jane, which is written by a colleague of mine, Claire. Um, and I'm the dramaturg for that production. So my thesis is basically in imitation of the Arden to write, to like build a critical edition for this play that Claire has written. Um, that was so cool. Yeah. So my thesis, my full thesis will be the introduction and like all of the footnotes and 
any appendices and whatever with the text. And then my chapter in our book will be just the introduction that I write. And I have a, a conference paper coming up. I'm presenting at College English Association. And I'm so like, nothing exciting, but I'm That's a great conference. Yeah. So. Yeah, I went last year and it was great fun. So I'm excited to go again. But my paper this year is based off of a footnote that I wrote in my Emlet thesis about blushing. And so what I'm working on now is basically gathering up as many instances in early modern drama of men acknowledging and commenting on women's blushes as possible and seeing if my hypothesis is correct, that the more men present on stage with this woman when they're talking about, when they're identifying and defining her blush, determines the likelihood of her blush being interpreted as shame instead of innocence. So like if it's Hmm. on one conversation, more likely that her blush will be innocent or interpreted as innocent, but the more men around her, they'll they'll assume that it's because she has something to be ashamed about or knows something that Mm. people shouldn't. I love that. That's such a great idea. Yeah. So if anyone out there has like instances of men talking about women blushing in early modern drama, get at me. I need to do the research and actually start writing because I'm not (laughs) sure what saying about that, but right. But that's what I'm working on right now. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So we also heard uh, today is Sunday and uh, it's been popping up in news today that the American Shakespeare Festival Theater at Stratford, Connecticut uh, burned down. It's It was burned to the ground today. That's a thing that happened, you know, in the wee hours uh, this morning. And it's really sad. Uh, <laughs> like it, the, that theater has, had been a landmark in Stratford, Connecticut for quite some time and it fallen into disuse but super famous people like Catherine Hepburn and James Earl Jones performed on that stage in Shakespeare plays you know it it I don't think had been operating as a theater since like the 80s but it was a piece of American Shakespeare theater history and uh, and they were um, working on getting grants to renovate it and and now it's burned to the ground so that's a little bit of sad news today. We also have a little bit of tooting our own horns because uh, I was recently a guest on an episode of That Shakespeare Life, which is a podcast hosted by Cassidy Cash. Um, you might know her by her Twitter handle, That Shakespeare Girl, or I guess her Twitter handle is at That Shakespeare. But she's a, an artist and an, a Shakespeare enthusiast, and she's um, she's got a podcast and a website. So you can check out my episode on Exit Pursued by a Bear, um, because somehow I became a bear authority. I'm not quite sure how. Yeah, I'm I'm offended that she didn't want to have me on to just let me rant about it's, how you should cut the bear. Is, I'm offended. It's, I'm not offended. It's well, it's because she didn't know about our podcast. She saw the blog that I wrote for my actual paying job at the American Shakespeare Center. <laughs> um, I'd written well, a blog I, recently. This job pays you. It in pays me in gratitude. Yep, in <laughs> fulfillment and love and all kinds of intangible not bankable things um <laughs> but how yeah dare you? Uh, <laughs> i had written a, a blog about how i worked with our touring troupe to develop a workshop about staging the bear um and yeah jess we're assuming that people are gonna stage the bear they don't have the option to not stage the bear but anyway she got in touch everyone has the option to not stage the bear not in this workshop they don't uh, anyway 
<laughs> yeah, so she got in touch with me about that. So we had a chat about that. It's about a 20 minute or so episode. You can check it out at www.cassidycash.com slash EP38. So episode 38, or just go to her website and you can find it. Um, I sound real smart. It's nice. Um, also, Jess, if you want to take the next yeah. one. Yeah. So we are slash were guests on the most recent episode of Remixing the Humanities, which is a podcast, which we were invited to be on there as part of their remixing teaching series. And that comes out slash came out on Tuesday the 15th. So it's in my future. But if you're hearing this, it's in your past. It's already out. So check us out. Uh, give them a listen. That's It was such such a fun afternoon uh and also like doubly special because aubrey and i were in the same place when we got to record that which never happens we're never in the same place basically um, never yeah it was it was fun to talk about what we do here and why we do it and how we do it and what we're trying to do when we do it um and <laughs> Keep how saying do it it's awesome <laughs> it, was, it was fun to talk about how we do it how aubrey and i do it together when we do it together mm. we do it together hashtag gasping pals <laughs> word <laughs> anyway so remix in the humanities you can find them anywhere you get your podcast also they're on the internet so they are they're a hoot out. you know yeah, i i really enjoyed them not, it was no it's okay it was a really fun like <laughs> couple of hours talking with them um I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing, like, the two of us with sometimes a guest, but it's, like, three of them all the time. Yeah. And their Across dynamic. three different time zones. Yeah, which, which is, is wild. Heroic. Um, but, but yeah, the three of them are just a hoot as a trio. Yeah. So they it was a lot of fun. We have enough trouble trying to keep track of our one-hour time difference. I know, right? And they had three different time zones. It's fucking uh... wild. You guys are heroes. Heroes check them out they were lots of fun remixing the humanities um okay dick bracket time <laughs> so uh as as we're just getting going again at the the second half of the season we don't yet have results from last week because as we're recording y'all haven't heard that episode yet you'll hear it tomorrow right so we're on a two-week delay so deal with it we'll have results for you next week um yeah but this week though we've got those scheming murdering boys from the white devil flaminio and bracciano yes flaminio and bracciano versus that dastardly lady killer alice arden from arden of faversham yeah <laughs> um i remember zero things about murder. either of them yeah it's murder v murder Murder v. Murder. Uh, I mean, the White Devil Boys murder more people, but Alice yeah. Arden, I don't know. True crime. She was a real person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? Murder v. Murder. Yeah. I mean, it's two versus one as well. So, like, they racked up a higher body count, the guys did, but there were two yeah. of them. Yeah. So. Yeah. They killed some wives, killed some other people, killed each other. Well, Linnea, do you have any feelings one way or the other? About our dick bracket matchup this week? Well, I mean, Alice is... Like, she has an affair with this guy. And, like, just... I don't know. Like, there, I feel like there are other ways to get out of marriage with this <laughs> husband who is 
by all accounts, fine. Like, he's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Other she than- just wants to go be with her side piece. Mosby. Yep. Mosby. Yeah. I'm sorry. Nobody wants to be with a guy named Mosby. Right? I mean, mean, Alice Arden does. I guess she does. But that's like a butler name, isn't it? Like, don't you name your butler or your manservant Mosby? I mean, I I think butlers and manservants come with names, but... Oh, right. Well... (laughs) (laughs) You're right, I guess. (laughs) They're not cats. You don't name them yourself. I don't? Oh, I've never had one. I I don't know how that works. Shows, you peasant. (laughs) But no, I don't have strong feelings either way. All of those people are despicable, but... I mean, that's why we're going to tweet it out and let the listeners decide so that we don't have to. It's also got nothing to do with the fact that I don't remember anything about either of those characters specifically. It's fine. (laughs) Like, yeah, they're bad. Get it together, Whitlock. They're dicks. Get it together. Sorry. Can't. Cannot. I mean, I'll take a stand. I think Alice is worse. Boom. I said it. Okay. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. I certainly hope you do this um, week because this is such an unknown play. Thanks so much to Linnea for joining us. We yes. hope that you love her just as much as we do. Uh, if you'd like to keep up with her work, you can find her making jokes on Twitter at Dorothy Barkers and posting cat pics on Instagram at Barkland Up the Wrong Tree. She's awesome. Check her out in both places. Definitely. And then tune in next week for round three of our January of (laughs) Shitty Plays, Timon of Athens, with another super awesome special guest who's going to talk us through it. Yeah, it's it's our second repeat guest. Yeah, that'll titillate the listeners. Ooh, who's it going to be? See if you can guess. Someone awesome. Good stuff. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can drop us a line at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or follow us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or on Twitter at hurlyburlyshake. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are strictly our own and not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. And I that am the rectifier of all by title pedagogus that let fall the birch upon the breaches of the small ones and pumble with the ferula the tall ones do here present this machine or this frame and dainty duke whose doughty dismal fame from dis to daedalus from post to pillar is blown abroad help me thy poor well-willer and with thy twinkling eyes look right and straight Upon this mighty moor of mickle weight. <laughs> Whamlet out. I got six six packs in a pink Cadillac, ten thousand dollars in a sack in the bag. It costs thirty five. I don't aim to use back. I got no bullets, just a will to whack. How you doing? Still alive? I like that mug. Check out that mug. Need a bag of dicks. <laughs> <laughs>
She said in the nicest way possible. <laughs> I mean, or not. fucking cold can eat a bag of dicks. I'm so over it. 